Welcome everyone back to another episode of Shares Not Shoes, an insider's guide to careers in finance. I'm your host, Camilla Love, founder of F3 Future Females in Finance. Shares Not Shoes is a podcast whereby I interview some of my favorite people, all with one thing in common. They work in finance. We lift the lid on who they are, how they came into a career in finance, and arm you with some knowledge about why a career in finance could be a good fit for you. I will promise that all my guests will share some amazing personal stories, will be open and honest, and will inspire you. So, let's go. So, today I'm so super excited to introduce you to Alexandra McGuigan. Now, Alex has a fabulous career in finance and is now heading and is one of the front people for 100 Women in Finance. And I have known Alex for at least, I'm thinking eight years, right? I remember the first time we met we've got introduced over the email and I think the two of you have very, two of us have a very good mindset about let's put things in the diary and let's get things done. And, you know, we're very efficient type people. And, um, I think both of you and I just knew straight away we, we would be good mates. And, um, I'm super excited to, to tell our, all our listeners about your journey. So Alex, welcome to Shares Not Shoes. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. And I love the name of Shares Not Shoes, but I do actually think that a career in finance, you can have both. Shares and shoes. Shares and shoes. It's true. (laughs) It's true. Because, you know, as I always say, I do like a good pair of shoes. Me too. Um, I'm only buying those shoes of the profit I have in my shares. So I invest first and then take my shoes later. Although... It's really hard to get back in those high heels after COVID and being it, in my gym really for the whole time. It really is. Yeah. I uh, carry them in my handbag actually mostly. Yeah. And I think all <laughs> women in finance do that because we're all power walking between meetings and, exactly, <laughs> and then exactly. all of a sudden you whip out your shoes. Totally. Yeah. So your finance career will give you good shoes, won't they, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, indeed. So Alex, hey, Thanks for saying yes to coming along and maybe you can give you know, our listeners a bit of an introduction on who you are and a little bit of your background and what you do right now. Sure. So I am an institutional salesperson by trade, if you will. I have had about 15 years experience in the industry doing that, raised around $2.5 billion in the Australian market across asset classes and strategies and have definitely what do they say, pounded the pavement. In you the worn those shoe leathers out, I have broken that many sh- heels. Broken that many heels, absolutely. So done done the rounds, met with anybody and everybody who would, who would take a meeting with me, ended up raising lots of money. And then um, I moved to Singapore with my husband in 2018 and we had a small baby at the time and I, I set up my own company in Singapore and I've been consulting Uh, since then. So my company in Singapore is called AM Access Capital and I currently am the Global Development Director for 100 Women in Finance and what I'm doing for them is institutionalising their capital raising process so we can essentially fund the demographic change in the industry from the companies that, that work in the industry. So I work, I talk to investment banks, asset managers, fund managers, uh, insurance companies, brokerage firms, you name it. I speak to them and I ask them for money. Yeah. And, and that's what I do. <laughs> and, and can I say, 
there is nothing wrong with asking people for money. And a lot, a lot of people out there really find it quite uncomfortable. But I dare say uh, with a bit of practice, it actually becomes easier, right? Uh, very easy. In fact, you know, you don't, you don't ask, you don't get. So oh, you may as well ask. I li- live by that mantra totally on Absolutely. anything, right? You Me may too. as well ask. <laughs> they can only say so, no and, they, and then you still, you still don't have what you wanted anyway. So it doesn't really matter. And, and what's wrong with no? And all, I always take a no as a maybe and never as a no. Yeah, <laughs> no absolutely, absolutely. They can always change their mind. Yeah, indeed. So, so 100 women and F3 actually have very sort of similar outcomes and goals, but we're doing yeah. it for different ways. So talk to me a little bit about what 100 women are doing globally. Okay, so 100 Women in Finance is the largest organization for the empowerment of women in financial services in the world. We have uh, 28 locations around the world, something like 20,000 registered members, 500 volunteers who really execute. And it's kind of different what we offer our members. So, so we offer it at our membership base. What we offer them is probably something similar to maybe like Women in Super, where we do bigger events and have keynote speakers, etc. And then we have sort of smaller events broken down by the experience level. And then our third pillar is impact. And so with the impact pillar, what we are trying to do is change the demographics of the industry. So for that, we have in, in our locations that are more senior, if you will, have probably 500 plus members, we host galas. And there's a committee that puts on the gala and they put together, it's a fundraising event really for the industry. And so all of that money that we raise, and we've raised $55 million in the last 20 years, all of that money goes towards investing in the next generation. And what does that mean? We have a grant giving program because of our global reach we um, we don't think that we can do everything ourselves, and we want to mm. we want to support smaller organisations or organisations that might be geographically specific, like F three, for example, um, mm-hmm. in the Australian market. And we we give funding to those organisations so they can go out and and continue on achieving our vision, which is to have thirty percent representation of women in senior investment roles and executive leadership positions by twenty forty. So recipients of that grant, those grants would be currently Maps for Girls in the UK and mm-hmm. um, there's one in New York called Girls Who Invest. And then we can also do our own initiatives. And our initiatives, because we we almost have a bird's eye view of the industry globally, our initiatives would always be industry facing and bridge the gap between organizations that are looking for students and helping those students to uh, female students to understand what a career in finance might look like, the different job types, the different companies they might be able to work for, the different countries they might be able to work in, and then helping those students to actually meet those companies and people who work in those companies so it becomes it becomes a, um, a, a real option for them to consider a, a career in finance. Indeed. So, I mean, there's a pretty, there's a couple of pretty lofty goals in there. Mm-hmm. Are there areas globally where finance is doing really well on the gender gap, or and then areas where they there aren't? Yes. So, the most underrepresented area are women in investment roles, 
and and the very senior executive leadership. We call it executive committee because sometimes the numbers at that very top level can be swayed by women who are working in traditionally female roles and companies can say, oh, well, we've got two women at the top, but they might be the person, the head of HR, global head of HR or global head of marketing, right? Whereas yep. what we mm-hmm. want is representation of women across the board. And so we have specifically focused on trying to solve for the most challenging piece of the puzzle, which is getting that that uh, investment role, which is currently Bloomberg says it's about 10% of women are portfolio managers globally, and that number hasn't changed in 20 years. So the reason that we're, we're focusing on this is that historically, actually, our fundraising has gone to different philanthropic partners. But in 2019, mm-hmm. the board recognised that the demographics hadn't changed, and if they were going to change at all, then there needed to be a concerted effort, and we would have to actually invest in making that change. So, so that's the goal, and it is a lofty goal. But we gave ourselves the time horizon of 20 years because we can uh, work on different initiatives like grassroots initiatives, getting girls who are still at school, considering careers in finance, helping those who might be, say, studying science or something at university, Mm -hmm. considering a career in finance, so actually transferable skills. We're going to work on initiatives to retain women in that mid-career section. So make sure that we're working with companies and make sure that they they have a plan to help their women during that childbearing, child-rearing period where, where it is more difficult. Some countries have high representation in that period, obviously, because there, there is childcare available. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we see high in, in Asia, where I live now, I'm in Singapore, participation rate of women in financial services firms during that period it doesn't really drop off that much it does drop off at the more senior level though and so we what we find that there is a multiplier effect and this sort of comes into unconscious bias as well or even conscious bias really but if you have women or diversity at the top you end up having a multiplier effect throughout the organization and so that woman will then hire women um, who will then hire women, right? So mm-hmm. so if we can get more women at the top, more women in the middle and more women <laughs> coming through the ranks, then maybe we have a chance. Yeah, and, you know, you know, both you and I have been in the industry for a long time and I'm, F3 is doing a lot in the grassroots, really on the student side, as, as you know, and I'm just trying to drive the pipeline. And I, when I looked at it, I just went, okay, how can I facilitate change inside an organization? I can't, I don't think personally I could. So hence why I work, I decided to start F3 for the pipeline, but it's glad, I'm glad that, you know, hundred women's looking at retaining the senior women and promoting senior women as part of that as well. But, you know, you, you started your, you did media at uni, right? So how did you jump from doing media at uni into finance? Like what what was the trigger point for you? Actually, I wanted to be an actress and I did a lot of acting training. I used to, to do a lot of performances with another girl who was a year ahead of me at school and she got into NIDA and we used to win all of these performances, etc. So when she got into NIDA, I just assumed that I would get into NIDA. Unfortunately, I didn't get into NIDA. Well, maybe it was fortunately. I don't know. Very but, fortunately. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't know each other, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, unless I was an amazing famous celebrity, which the chance you could be of on that. The, the rich list and um, yeah. be on you know every Marvel yeah. <laughs> episode yeah. that's out there. Un- unlikely because the the chances of that are very very slim. So so I quickly realised that that my um I didn't want to be poor actually. <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted. I I had other skills, and so I. Did, I, I actually did media and communications because it was um, I was just biding my time until I got into NIDA and then I realised that I had, had other skills and I should just probably focus on my studies for a little while. And I ended up working, I did an exchange overseas, I came back and I ended up working in the wine industry because my family makes uh, wine, which was super fun. I used to go to all these parties and sponsor fancy parties with... Yeah, I should Mc, have been Mc your McGuigan friend back wine. then. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really fun but it was... Um, it was also a little meaningless. Um, mm-hmm. And so after my travels and, and studying at Cornell, I was like, you know, I really, I had kind of had the travel bug and I wanted to go overseas again, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my career. And I, I also kind of didn't want to waste that time just sort of faffing about. So um, I made a plan and I decided five things that I wanted to achieve in the next five years. And they were, I wanted to complete a postgraduate degree. I wanted to live in another country. I wanted to learn another language. I wanted to buy a property and I wanted to have a share portfolio. And I went down, I told my dad and he laughed at me. And I was like, whatever, I can figure out a way to do this. Oh. So, <laughs> so this is the, the whole purpose is you proving up your point to your dad, is it? Always. That's always, always <laughs> That's the gold. goal. That's always the goal of everything. So, so I decided to do an MBA. And I figured out that I, if I did an MBA at a university that did an exchange to another country, then I could tick off two of those boxes. And if that other country didn't speak English, then I could tick off three of those boxes. Uh-huh. So I did that. And then um, I wanted to buy a property before I left. And so I figured I was going to need money. And where do people make money? In finance. <laughs> so I changed up my CV to suit whatever job, the only job that I was qualified to do in financial services, and that was um, to be an executive assistant. So mm-hmm. I, I got lucky and I interviewed with an amazing man who became my mentor and took me under his wing, and he was the managing director of um, BNY Mellon Asset Management. And mm-hmm. and he said to me, he, he was an American guy, and he saw that I, I'd done, um, I studied at Cornell, which is an American Ivy League university, and he said, look, you're overqualified for this job, but if you do it and you do it really well for two years, I'll teach you how to run a business. And I was like, that's a pretty good I'll deal. I'll take you on that. Yeah. And so I ended up getting to um, to shadow this managing director and literally I, I learned everything. I learned how to write emails. I learned how to present myself. I learned how to put a roadshow together. I learned how to manage my time and all of those skills that I learned in that role I still do today use every day for sure Mm. and do you still keep in touch with him I do I do yeah great and he's based in the states now so so not as much as as we did in the past but he was um there's there's only been a few people that have been as impactful on my life as him and so after that I mean he was just flying around the world winning mandates for 150 million dollars I was just like this is cool I want to be like you (laughs) I want to be like you exactly and then after that that's that's just what I set my mind on and I was like I want to do that and so I ended up studying I did go to France and I did the um, exchange 
but I I actually had to major in international business, but I studied all finance um, subjects and, and really was coming from very far behind, but I worked my butt off and here, here I am. Do you find purpose in the financial services industry? Like it sounded like, you know, you've, you've definitely found that here. Absolutely. Well, I think that, it, look, finance is really interesting, but the subject matter is challenging, right? So the people are generally quite intelligent and intelligent people are, uh, have interests other than just finance. So mm-hmm. I, I find the conversations that I have with people in financial services to be in- interesting. The subject matter is always changing and, and I'm a lifelong learner and advocate of that. Uh, so I like the fact that it's always changing. But really, in, in order to, to make change in the world, change goes where money flows, right? And mm-hmm. so, so if you actually want to make a difference in climate change or anything like that. That's a great example. In financial services, you actually have the ability to make change. And, I mean, it's it's all good. Don't don't get me wrong. Marching and and joining in protests and all of that kind of stuff, that's all good stuff. But if you really want to make change, you've got to get money to go to the problem. Yeah, and divert capital away to actually really make the change that it needs to see. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then talk to me a little bit how you were, like, did you love sales? Did you love your roles? What was your favorite asset class that you, you sold? What, what can you give me a bit of an insight there? Yeah, sure. So what I really like to do is start with a problem. So, so I can talk about GAM when I first started at Shed Enterprises. So so GAM is a, is a huge uh, global asset manager and we were representing them. They had performance in, in a fixed income strategy of 10% per annum. Um, they had a track record of like 10 years. Uh, they were coming out to Australia for six years and they just couldn't raise money. So I was like, all right, I need to do a bit of an analysis on what is going on here. So I went out to the market. I spoke to different people. I found that the fee was just too high for the mm. Australian market and they and they were raising capital all around the world. So they were like, well, we're not going to negotiate on fees. But that's a mistake because if you're trying to uh, enter a different market, you need to understand what the constraints and, and the requirements are of that market to be able to mm. sell the fund. So that was the first thing. Then the second thing was, I mean, you're going to laugh at this, this is how old I am, but at the time, interest rates were like seven <laughs> percent more, more than zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they were like, and, and you know, they were getting ten percent. Okay, and then so I had people go, all right, well, you, you're getting annualized ten percent. So you say, but things can change, right? So that's that's an okay ten percent. Then you're going to charge me one percent fee, so I get to nine percent. I can get a guaranteed seven and a half percent, so I think that I'm going to go with that option. Yeah, because the risk is, you know, it's a no-brainer on the risk of decision course. too. Yeah, absolutely. It was an absolute return bond strategy. So, mm. so, so basically, I put that analysis together, and I expressed that to the manager, and they were like, "Oh, thank you. No one had ever um, told us this before." So, so figuring out what the problem is first Mm. and Mm -hmm. then working out a plan on how to execute and how to sell so so that strategy then okay so then where does it 
fit? What bucket does it fit into? Is it an alternative because it's a hedge strategy or mm-hmm. is it a fixed income strategy? Probably not fixed income because it's too expensive. So then you work out your target market and from the target market then you go, all right, well, where, who, who are the asset consultants for each of these people? So it's like a puzzle really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of cool to be able to figure out the bits and pieces and then you just have to go and drink tons of coffee with lots of different people. <laughs> and from a person who doesn't drink coffee at all, me, right, I find that yeah. very difficult. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of coffee. Um, so you, you have to build relationships. People have to trust you. I always like to think about it first that they, they buy me, then they buy the business, and then they buy the product. If they, don't want to, if they don't want to deal with me, then there's no chance that they're going to buy the product. And it's, So how it, do you – I mean, that's really critical because we talk about a bit in Shares Not Shoes that it really is a relationship industry. Yes. So talk about how, how you go about building relationships that are based on, on trust and authenticity. I think you just have to go and have coffee with people and just talk about things that aren't <laughs> related to the product. Like don't try and sell all the time. Like mm-hmm. it can't, it'll come to the end of the conversation and they'll say, all right, well, show me what you got. I'll see if I'm interested. And I love the institutional space because, look, there's a professional approach to it and I can have a personal relationship with someone and go and try and talk to them about a specific product. But if they're not interested, they can be like, look, I really like you, Alex, but just not going to, this is just not going to fly with us, you know. Not for now. Not for now. Come and see me when you've got something different. So you can have those, it's less opaque, I think, and you can have those open and honest conversations. You can get feedback and you really just have to pound the pavement. Now, it's a little bit different with Zoom, but it's also more efficient sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like that, you, you can never uh, forego or underestimate the impact of being in person. However, having an hour coffee and then traipsing to the other end of the city to have an hour coffee takes a long time. Wears out a lot of shoes as we've, as we've already Where's the shoes? discussed. Has um, a high possibility of breaking a heel. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that a Absolutely. few times. Me too, me too. But on Zoom, so, so at the moment now I'm, I deal a lot with the US. So I'm based in Singapore, so I deal with the US. It's a 12-hour time difference. So every day I pretty much only have – I only I work from 8 p.m. till 10 p.m. at night with the U.S. and I probably have four pitches a night for half an hour. Yeah, right. Which is a lot of energy, but I can get through a lot. I must have had 220 meetings with with global institutions in the last I don't know seven months or something. That's mm. a lot of meetings. <laughs> that is a lot of meetings. Gosh, yeah. that's but really get- and. The efficiency is definitely there. You can see that already. Yeah. And so, look, depending on what the product is and how complex it is, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm selling, you know, sponsorships to a non-profit, which is pretty easy to get your head around. Whereas yeah. if, you're, if you're selling a derivative strategy or a quantitative strategy, it's going to take a lot of meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And institutional sales process, I always tell people, is, is minimum 12 months from the first oh. meeting. Two minimum. years two at years. best. And, and two years probably by the time the money comes in. It's probably mm-hmm. six months from the time they tell you that you're going to get the money till the money actually coming in <laughs> By the, the time you do all the legals, definitely, and the negotiation part on fees, oh, my gosh, it can take a while. It can take a while. But when you get $150 million mandate, or my biggest one ever was $350 million, 
that's pretty exciting on that day. Totally. <laughs> Go out and buy a pair of new shoes just on exactly. a pat on the back. To- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. So you mentioned your quest and your sort of mantra of lifelong learning. And I know you've mm-hmm. done extra stuff and, you know, Kaya post-grad stuff. Tell me a little bit about that and why you did it. So Kaya I did because um, most – so Shed Enterprises was – it's a third-party marketing firm and what that means is that we represented international fund managers in the Australian market. And Shed Enterprises is a specialist in alternative investments and alternative mm-hmm. investments are, um, are typically – basically they have more bells and whistles and yeah. le- levers and bits and pieces. More complex. Much more complex. Um, so, so I did that and then I moved on to um, Tribeca and I was head of investor relations at Tribeca. And, and again, they had a macro strategy, they had a long short equity strategy and a regular small cap strategy. But, you know, they, they were complex strategies and I really felt that to have the credibility to go and speak to a CIO about, you know, the macro strategy or the long short equity strategy um, which was what we called quantumental, which is part qualitative, mm-hmm. uh, quantitative, sorry, and part fundamental. I really needed to have the vocabulary and the skills and the understanding to be credible. And so I, so I did the Kaya, and it was the most useful study I like, like immediately useful study I've ever done to to exactly what I was doing. And no study is wasted. Don't get me wrong, but but for what I was doing, the the comprehension rate just increased substantially. And that is a focus on alternatives, correct? Correct. So it's like the CFA, but it's for alternatives. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you can obviously that apply directly to, you know, the people you're talking to and the products that you're, you're with. And I, and I bring this up because there are alternatives out there that might not necessarily be apparent when people are just looking for extra you know, extra learning in this space. Oh, absolutely. And so the other thing that I've, I'm doing now is I've just signed up to Wharton Online. So Wharton is, you know, the top finance university in the world or yeah. seen as the top finance university in the world. Obviously, I don't have the capacity to go and, and uh, do a course there in person at the moment, but I've signed up for um, a certificate in asset allocation and portfolio construction. Mm-hmm. which I'm continuing to do. So so there's lots of different ways that you can upskill yourself um, and if you want to transition or you need to, to you know, move from media and communications into finance, mm-hmm. there's <laughs> lots of different ways you could do it. <laughs> yeah, good. So tell me, um, I always like to have real-life stories as part of this and tell me like sure. a really, really interesting or highlight of your career so far? Really interesting highlight of my career. Well, I guess that was the first the first mandate I won, right? So I so I did this analysis and I I don't actually think anyone ever thought that I was going to raise money. So that was pretty cool. Why I, not? Well, I don't know because with a third-party marketer, you're kind of a gun for hire almost. Sure. Um, so it's not like it's not the same as as what you do being embedded in an organization and understanding mm-hmm. what's happening you're always one step removed right so you're just the sales and marketing arm really 
and and Shed had been successful, definitely, but I I think that people were expecting that other people would have to come in at the top level and um, you know support the the sales process through to the end. So I worked out this this strategy, and I was like, all right, so this is how they they outperformed, and so I. Um, I reached out to one of the CIOs and I said, you know, will you have a meeting with me? And he said, yeah, okay, I'll have a, I'll have a coffee with you. And so he had like a 30-minute coffee with me and he said something about the product, why he wasn't interested in looking at it. And I said, well, actually, I, I have to check because I'm only new, but I think that that's wrong. I think that actually this is these are the returns of the product. And so he was like, hmm, all right, well, send me stuff and I'll have a look at it. And so I sent it to him and he was like, you're right. Actually, my understanding of this strategy was, was not correct and, and it has outperformed all of its peers. So, so then I started building a relationship with this CIO and brought the portfolio manager out a number of times. And then he said to me, okay, so I've decided I want to do this and I'm going to go and tell Jana that I want to do this and they have to come back to me with uh, a reason why I can't do what I want to do. And I was like, that is the golden ticket. Because <laughs> if you can get uh, an institutional investor to instruct a asset consultant to work on your product, then you basically can open the floodgates and that's kind of what happened. So, so he had the asset consultant work on it. They approved the strategy. And I remember I was, I was walking um, on George Street when he called me and he said, I just want to let you know I'm going to give you $150 million. And I, I did a happy dance on the street. <laughs> <laughs> and people were like, who's this crazy lady? Woo-hoo. <laughs> what is she doing? What is she doing? And then literally, so it took 18 months to get that first call to say they were going to give us that money and another 18 months to raise $1.5 billion. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's funny how it's just the first. And then once the first, how long it gets to, it takes to get to the first. And once the first comes in, the flood comes. Not always. Not always, but if it's a good product and it really helps. And so one of the key points I would like, I I think that's a good story to highlight um, the need for persistence. And a lot of people won't have that that persistence and that tenacity to keep following up. And now you can't be annoying. You really have to try not to be annoying because that shuts doors on oh, your yeah. faces. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can say, and, and the way that I did it with him was he said, okay, this is the next thing I'm going to do. Call me in two months. And so I put it in my diary and I called him in two months and I said, hey, you just, you told me to reach out in two months. Is now a good time? And he would say, no, I still haven't got to it. Give me another month. And so I'd pencil it in my diary and I just, whatever he told me to do, I did. I really try not to pester him and so so having that systematic approach to the follow-up is is significant in the sales process for sure. Mm. And there's so to me there's two sort of learnings from that story is and I relate to something that I had a conversation ages ago, maybe 15 years ago I had with my boss who said really there's only 10% of people like you and I, Alex, where we just get stuff done. Like yes. the rest of the people will go along on the ride or, you know, things happen in its luck or whatever, but it's yeah. 10% of people who have that persistency. Yeah. 
And the second moral of the story, never underestimate Alex McGuigan. Never underestimate Alex McGuigan. That's exactly right. And you know what? <laughs> Actually, that, 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 um, so I used to be the chair of the emerging, Asper Emerging Leaders, and the CEO was leaving, and I remember I had a conversation with them, and I said, please, give me some, give me some pearls of wisdom before you leave. And this person said to me, never underestimate the mediocrity of others. And that's (laughs) true. I've never, ever forgotten it. And you know what? You don't have to be the best. You just have to be a little bit better than everybody else and you will still win. Mm, Indeed. So that was... Pearls of wisdom, everyone. Pearls of wisdom. Pearls of wisdom. Hey, um, where are you going to be in five years' time? Where am I going to be? Well, I'm actually working on something pretty exciting. So... um, You can't tell. I can't tell. I can't say just yet, but I'm working on a project. Like what I can say is that female portfolio managers tend to outperform and Mm. uh, there's a lot of empirical evidence that has been done by um, investment banks and and management consulting firms that prove this. And it's for a number of reasons. One is self-selection bias. So they are just those type of people who, those 10% of people who, who get it done. They are also comfortable being the only person in the room so these Mm -hmm. portfolio managers tend to sit with contrarian positions longer which is very very valuable in a portfolio so so even though we have this information that tells us that women outperform they still manage less than one percent of the global assets and Mm -hmm. that is also for various reasons one is unconscious bias but i think that we're coming to a place where that is being actively addressed Mm -hmm. in organizations but the second and probably most challenging piece is the structural element, right? So institutional investors, they have uh, risk management requirements and investment committees who say you can't be more than 10% of a fund, which mm-hmm. makes it impossible for them to invest in women. So there's, a, there's this whole group of exceptional investors who, who get immediately eliminated from the, the selection process just because of their size. So I'm working on a project with two Singaporean institutions on analysing whether or not this is actually true for uh, the Asia-Pacific managers outperform. And if they, if it, if it, when the research proves the case, then I'm going to be working on a solution to get more money to women. Mm, watch this space. I know, it's very exciting. Oh, that's so exciting. It is. So we're going to come to the end of our podcast soon. But before we do, have you listened to any of my other podcasts? What we do at the end? Um, we do this quick fire round where I ask you like five or six different questions and you've got to say the first thing, like the first thing that comes into your <laughs> okay. mind. You, 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 you're up for something like that? <laughs> sure. Okay. I hope, it's not, I hope it's not rude. No, well, <laughs> who knows what your answer is going to be. <laughs> Okay, you ready to go? Yeah, let's go. Okay. If you could be any animal, what would it be and why? Tiger. Um, strong and beautiful. Mm, fierce. Fierce. Yeah. Endangered. Endangered? I think strong. Strong, mm. powerful, but I don't want to say Elegant. calculated. Ele- yeah, but... but um, Planned and considered, I think. Like if they make an attack, they they don't just do it. They think about it and they... They stalk. 
let's talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. I, I know. know. I want to be that. <laughs> My favourite superhero is? Shira. Princess of Power. So <laughs> yeah. good. Oh, my God, that reminds me of the 80s so badly yeah. with him, oh, He-Man. Shira and He-Man. <laughs> that's so good. That's gold. I love that. Uh, if you could invite anyone alive or dead to dinner, who would it be and why? Oh, Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, so Elizabeth amazing. Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. And just amazing. because of the grace, the uh, diamonds, the dress? The diamonds, the, diamonds, the dress. I, I just want to know the stories as well. Oh, how many husbands? Nine Seven or something? I don't know. Oh, gosh. How many? She married one of she married one of the one of them and divorced one of them twice. Twice, exactly. Yeah, I can't remember who that a was. A lady who but... can't make up her mind. Nothing wrong with that. No. Um, <laughs> my favorite book is. Oh, it's called it's by David Benioff and it's called City of Thieves. It's about the siege of Leningrad and two boys. They they get thrown in a prison cell together and they've basically both both been accused of doing something wrong and in order to save their their lives, uh, the general or the commander sends them off on this incredibly dangerous adventure to find a dozen eggs in 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 the Le- siege of Leningrad when there was like everyone was starving to death. So it's a fabulous book. You won't be able to put it down. Okay. Great. I'll have to put that on my reading list. Mm, it's very good. My first investment was? A property, an apartment on William Street, Darlinghurst. Mm, do you still have it? I do. Great. I do. Someone is living in it right now, hopefully happy. Good. Good. <laughs> my biggest investment mistake was? Not linking my um, offset account to my money my for the property, so I lost oh. it. Oh, no. Anyway, I figured it out. and Extra interest paid. Yeah. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. Yeah. Mm. That was that was a biggie. What weird or unusual thing do you have in your handbag right now that you want to tell us about? <laughs> do I want to say? Oh, I've got shoes. <laughs> shoes? <laughs> I'm thinking of something else, but, yeah, cool. No, every handbag no. has a good pair of shoes. Well, and, and you know what? I'm just really organised and I constantly change my handbag, so there's nothing weird in there. I usually put it away. <laughs> there is. Gosh, I don't have enough handbags to do that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's just in the drawer. Maybe that's a better question. What's, what's in your drawer? <laughs> what is in your drawer then? Tell us. Yeah, it's not really very exciting either. Notes? <laughs> Personal notes. notes. Passwords? Bits and pieces, it's not very exciting. The, the efficiency of passwords in your drawer is not that <laughs> sound great. Uh, my hidden talent is? Oh, reciting poetry. What? Reciting poetry. Can you tell us some now? Come on, you can do it. Come so on. I, I used to have this one poem that I used to win all of the Estedfords in around Sydney and for anyone who's not into acting or whatever it's very lucrative business so you, uh, when you get to the open stage when you're 16 years old there's like $100 checks which was a lot of money back in the 90s mm. so, <laughs> so I used to make my mum drive me around all around Sydney and I used to re- I used to recite the same poem and just like clean up <laughs> do you remember it I no. can I can tell you the name. Yes, of course I remember it. My family still walks around the house going, "Night herons, 
Judith Wright. <laughs> they, <laughs> they mock me <laughs> to no end. And you're like, but I still got cash for that. So I got cash for that and I got an apartment. So I, who, was, who had the last laugh? Indeed, indeed. And the final, the final question is a career in finance is? Freedom. That's it. I think that's a fabulous way to yeah. end. So, Alex, fabulous. So good to hear from you. I really miss you for being in Singapore. Come home come home and visit us soon. Oh, I want to. I want to. And thanks for being so wonderful and, you know, all, such a great organic conversation and thanks for sharing your ups and downs and your and your nuggets of information and um if if anyone wants to take anything away is um never underestimate Alex McGuigan, huh? never underestimate the mediocrity of others that's the best one Um, but if anyone wants to contact me any students want to know anything contact me through LinkedIn I'm happy to help in any way I can Hunter Women in Finance has free memberships for students so if you want to get involved and learn more about just just start to learn the dialogue and the language the different events that are on all that kind of stuff just let me know and I'm very happy to help Thanks, Alex. Okay. All right. Hopefully see you soon. Thanks, Cam. Bye. For more information on what we do at F3, head to f3.com.au. I look forward to you joining us next episode where we continue to interview some fabulous people and give you the inside scoop on careers in finance. Bye for now. You know, the information that is in this podcast, we always talk about finance in this podcast, but it's not financial advice. It's actually really careers advice. If you really want financial advice, I recommend that you speak to a financial planner um, or a broker and um, work out your own personal circumstances with that. But this is all about careers advice and how um, finance will be a fabulous career for you.